John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1357.IS4031, certificate number 20800, ultra running. In the very early days of the Omnibus Project, I think our very third entry, the first one we did here in Seattle, we talked about marathon running. So I assume you and I have had this conversation before, but what's the longest you've ever run? Well, I was in cross country in high school. Oh, I didn't know you were cross country. And I was not very good at cross country. I thought you were all skiing all the time. Uh, and I was in cross country skiing in high school, oh. but I was in cross country running you, for one fateful year. Do you enjoy physical culture? Physical culture. Uh, what I what I enjoyed was socially. I was um, I was. Social with the cross-country runners. There was something about, as you know, cross-country runners are the real wits of the sports world. Uh, they tend to be just so fun. They're not really. They're mostly Scandinavians. And at my school, they were kind of the light, skinny kids who also enjoyed fantasy role-playing games. Yeah, and and they tend to be quiet, uh, introverted people. But for whatever reason, I was I I socially hung out with the cross-country runners and. My dad was of the opinion that cross country running was a virtuous sport that would, you know, that would make a make a young man turn his thoughts to higher pursuits. Adults really do like to see children have a bad time for yeah. an extended amount of time. That's right. I think the idea is there's going to be a, a lot of this in life. Get out L there. Let's let's model it now in a, in some kind of laboratory conditions. Yeah. Build character. Beat yourself up. Um, be out of breath for an hour. Uh, and it ended up that my high school girlfriend was a competitive cross-country runner and skier. So socially, it did translate into a kind of culture for me. And a lot of my friends throughout high school were um, were part of the cross-country scene. I so what's, was, what's an event then? Like what's a... Uh, it was, you know, the small ones were 5Ks, the long ones were 10Ks. I was, I was not an exceptional runner. The first few races I was pretty bad but by the end of that year I was able to kind of stay in the in the middle back end of the pack um the first race I ever ran in cross country I came in last by several minutes everyone had gone home except for your parents 
Yeah, it was a, it's a story I've told before where um, the best runner on the team, a guy by the name of Matt Olness, uh, was coaching me before the race. And he said, look, when the gun goes off, you got to get out in front of the pack because, you know, everybody starts on this big wide line, but then the pack narrows down to kind of single track. And if you get out in front, then you're not stuck behind a bunch of people as the, as the trail winds its way. Mm-hmm. And so the gun went off and I just took off like a rabbit. And I was, I was running the JV race and so no one had ever seen me run before. And pretty soon I'm 50 yards ahead of everybody else, just way out front. And the, you know, I can see the crowd on either side cheering as I run past looks of amazement. And I look behind me and I'm like, I'm the greatest cross country runner the world has ever seen. What, a, why did I not know? You've been keeping your light under a bushel. That this was my gift. And basically what I was doing was sprinting the first quarter mile and when I got to, you know, the half mile point, the first runner started, you know, went past me. And by the time I rounded the corner and started up the first hill. There were still like two and a half miles left and you were. And I was, and and then it was just like. Are there usually hills? I guess I didn't think that way about cross country. Yes. It, yes, there are. And in, in uh, at least in Alaska, I mean, all of our cross country races were either on golf courses or cross country ski trails but it was you know fall and so the the trails were dirt yeah anyway i limped in across the finish line you know after yeah right after the school bus had already started its motor i got better but i was never um it was it was hard for me to cross cross country is not not my sport there are people who enjoy it um who love it yeah, it's. Uh, I find that I enjoy stopping. I've been running Green Lake this summer, which is it's three miles. So it's about a five k. Yeah. Um, but then I got to drag myself back up the hill. But it's uh, really the best part is how good you feel after you're done. And you're really, done. the 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 key to that emotion is the fact that you're not running anymore. And I guess you could capture that just by never running in the first place. But for some reason, I'm right now. I'm not attuned to the pleasure of not running yet. In answer to your question, my longest race was probably ten k, and I think I spent the the entire race wishing it was over. That's a long time a long to time. run. Yeah. I Seven guess, miles and more. You know, it's not too late for us. You and I could become distance runners. The, uh, our, our, know, our, our friend Peter Sagel became a marathon runner in his early 40s. Peter and, has and the has advantage books about it. of being five foot seven or whatever. And that's, I think, an advantage if you're a if you're getting into it late because of your knees, you mean there's yeah. less, but there's I've also less tissue above them. I've torn an ACL in one of my knees and all the meniscus is gone. When I walk around, I, was I, it during that like first race? What Matt Olness uh, lied to you? No, it was at a grateful dead concert, uh, um, with Edie Burkell opening at RFK stadium in 1989. And you were what, cli- climbing up the, you're climbing up some of the, scaffolding i jumped off of a i jumped off of the outfield wall yeah i screwed up i screwed i screwed up a lot as a kid as a young person all my i broke every bone in my have body. you ever stage dived as a performer yes but but uh, oh you mean when it was my show yes i've definitely stood on the edge of the stage turned around and fallen backwards into the crowd but i've done quite a bit of in the early 90s, quite a bit of like get up on stage, run as fast as you at can, a punk or a grunge fly show. out into the crowd. But you also did it in the outfield wall, so you were you were in the in the back of the. I did. It was arena. an amazing night. The the um, who was playing Edie? Edie Brickell was done. 
Uh, the dead had been spending a lot of time getting set up. I was way up in the stands in the back of the stadium. Both geographically doing, and psychically. Yeah, probably. doing, I don't know what, just <laughs> talking to people, just getting to know people up there in the, in the very far back of the stadium. And then all of a sudden the clouds came over the stadium and it was a lightning storm. Dark, dark clouds poured over. RFK is open, an open field poured over the top of the stadium and lightning started to strike, you know, like flash and thunder. And then the dead took the stage, like all at the same moment. And, you know, if you're at a dead concert, you're already predisposed to being like really ready to trip out. What do you mean? I was just like totally ready to like, oh my God, like have my mind just blown by this, whoa. And lightning and like, whoa, man, oh no. And the dead start. And I'm like, I'm at the back and I got to get to the front, man. What am I even doing? And I ran and there, all the people were like crowding their way down in the field. And I was like, I've got a better way, man. I'm not going to just like go on the stairs with like all the other people. I'm going to like fly. I'm going to fly to the front. And so I, you're like a kid putting on a Superman cape and jumping yeah, out a window. I hurtled the railing and I was, and I was on the outfield wall. I mean, I was 30 feet above the ground and just fell like a dumb blob. And there were some hippies on the ground below me. And so as I was falling, I, in order not to hit them, land on them, I had to also twist. Well, look, at that's nice that hippie prevention was your number one. I don't want to kill anybody. Not even hippies? But I completely dislocated my knee and tore my ACL. You, t- you took on one the for the team. I did. I took one for the team, which was for the generation those of dumb hippies who are probably 60 years old now and living in Baltimore. And they're running marathons. And they have no idea and that I've got a torn meniscus. suffered the rest of my life on their behalf. Only one in 1,000 Americans has run a marathon. So you could be 0.1%. One in 1,000? Yeah. That seems like a lot. Of people who have run in a marathon. I, th- I would have said it was one in a hundred thousand, but no, that doesn't make sense that there's more people running in marathons than that. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, if you've never done it, it just seems like a superhuman feat. Run 26.2 miles. No, no, I'm not even close to that. But like my sister did it and she's, you know, she's just kind of a fit normal. Uh, she's a regular person. Right. Um, so you can trick your body into running. 26.2 miles, which is just interesting to think about. You know, it, it tends to, it, it's like one of these things about how we all have these untapped, we like to imagine we all have these untapped. It's why people love the myth of the, we only use 10% of our brains. Because we apparently only do use 10% of our legs. If most of us are running zero miles a day, but most of us could get to 26 with a few months of thinking about it. It seems to be a thing, like for me, swimming is very difficult because although I'm buoyant, like every human is buoyant, I'm buoyant in a way where my nose is just under the water. I'm less buoyant. I have to do a weird arching thing to uh, breathe and be buoyant. And when I see people who are just 10% more buoyant, that's all it takes for you to be able to float with your mouth above the water, right? Like the difference between buoyant and not buoyant is just the difference of four inches between whether your, your nose is underwater or your nose is above the water. It's not that much, but it's it's all the difference in the world. Because when I'm in the water, I'm just struggling to stay up. When's the next breath coming? But other people just sit and just happily just float along. And I feel like that's true in distance running too. That there's a there's something 
that allows it's, it's something something physiological makes it much easier for most people or for some people to just be like oh run sure i'll run oh keep running sure i'll keep running but for me to like run to the end of the block is i mean first i just have to get the I'm, I just feel like a rhinoceros. It's just like, okay, here we go. And now everything is moving and it all hurts. And I'm now, I'm, and now I just, please let this be over. Well, nobody's judging your form. So, well, thank you know, you. if you can, in a marathon, as far as I know. But like I, the idea of running for 20 minutes, let alone for four hours. And I have so many friends that do it. They're just like, I'm going running. And they put their headphones on. And they run and it's like three hours later and they've just been running. So they, they reach a state. I think you, maybe you could and you just haven't been in that state. I don't believe it. I don't believe I can. You don't think there is a state? I don't believe that I can achieve that state. Mm. I believe that that state is achievable for some people. And I don't know the difference between us. It, is it some kind of BMI or, you know, like is it a, a thrust to weight ratio? It's probably just some kind of inner virtue. Oh, like the runners are better people than we that's are. That's what my dad thinks. They, they they just, you know, they can they can uh, they put their mind to it. They put their mind. Have you thought to of it. putting your mind to it? Oh, that would solve so many problems. <laughs> Maybe you need better shoes. It's got to be the shoes. <laughs> it's got to be the shoes. Um, but the fact is, the fact that one in a thousand Americans has run a marathon means it's not it's. It's not, uh, you know, if you're if you're some kind of uh, if you're interested in being a, a fitness elite, um, that means you know it's three hundred thousand people. By the way, I can help you with that. Uh, are are we still assuming that there are um, three hundred million Americans? There's about three hundred million Americans. Oh, I thought that that number had gone up. It's one of those things where when we were when we were little, I was like, there are six billion people in the world, and then one day it was. Well, when I was a kid, it was always, you could always say 250 million Americans, and now I think it's much closer to 300. The latest census, we don't have census numbers, the latest estimate is, oh no, it's it's upward. It's yeah. 330 million. Yeah, there we go. Um, so 300,000 people have run a marathon. But that just, you know, so that, that gives you a bumper sticker, but it doesn't make you a superhero. Like to normals like us, it really, to me, that seems like a super heroic feat. How exciting. 24 miles. That people, wow. like that we evolved to be able to do that. And in fact, we're one of the best species at it. Like almost no species on earth can outrun a human over that distance. Not in speed, but in, in uh, stamina. Yeah. Um, you know, there are most breeds of horse you can outrun if you, if the race is long enough. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're seeking a truly elite experience, you want something that fewer people can do. And that's why... There's a much smaller group of people that sneers at marathoners. Are they the um, by the triathloners? I mean, you could do that. You could bring in other stuff. But let's say you just want, let's say you're a purist. Okay, you're, I am one. You're in it for, just like you, they love running. Yes. They're in, they're, they're in it for the running. <laughs> they collect swords. They, they want every one, one of every kind. They like to run like a rhinoceros. And uh, so there's common races for these ultra marathoner types, uh, a 50K a hundred K or even the, the most common lengths goes up to 50 miles or a hundred mile mm. race. So essentially running four marathons back to back a, a little less. And you know, most of these people, if they're good runners, their marathon times are going to be around three, you know, under four hours, maybe around three. So that's a day of running. They just are going to run all day, dawn to dusk and you can cover a hundred miles. That's pretty good. I'm going to out myself here as as being uh, close friends with an ultra runner. 
And I know that it doesn't, it seems like not on brand for me. No, it does. But we know, you and I both, I mean, you know him. He's come up on the show before. We know someone who runs 100-mile ultra runs through the night until the morning. Ultra, ultra marathoner. I don't know if I'm thinking of the right person. Who do you think you're thinking of? Is it a musician? It is a musician. Is it a musician that I didn't recognize the last time I saw him running? <laughs> it is a musician who has, has routinely said that when he runs into you, you don't remember him. Yeah, I saw him booking down a trail. Yeah. And I assume he ran up that trail as well. Yeah. Really? We're talking about uh, lead singer and guitarist of Death Cab for Cutie, Ben Gibbard, who... And he will run 100-mile races? At some point in the last 10 years, decided at first he, that he was going to be a runner, and then decided that that wasn't enough, and he was going to be a marathoner, and then dis- d- discovered that that was not enough. He's chasing a new high. And so I remember the first time he ran a 50K, and then the first time he ran a 50-miler, and then a 100-miler... And he's done races where you do, you run all night long and run until the next day. But a lot of these are also mountain runs. Yeah. So you're running a hundred miles, but it's not just across the flat pavement. You're running up and over a mountain range. I've always thought it was bull that marathons had hills. Like you're making these just kind of normal folks run 26 miles. Just pick a path that doesn't have any hills. I know, the hill is the worst part. But uh, so, so here is a friend, a person inspiring. I've known for 20 plus years, now 24 years, and he and I share a lot. We sit and talk, but I have no earthly idea what it is like to be him or to do this thing. It's like he's an astronaut. But, and I can't, I cannot relate to it at all. But you've implied that he, it's something he decided. And I think we agree that you and I could not decide to throw a 95 mile per hour fastball. He can also do that. Wait, really? Ben Gibbard was a was a very successful um like high school baseball pitcher and can, and thought for a long time that he was going to go into professional baseball. That was his dream. And I don't think he made don't think he could make the cut. He he couldn't throw a 95 mile an hour fastball. He could only throw a 80 mile an hour fastball. It just seems like distance running compared to I'm going to start in the NBA or I'm going to yeah. I'm going to kick 50 yard field goals. It is something that just regular folks decide to do, and they work their way up to uh, remarkable feats because it seems to be in our genetic ability. In our, in our, it's our evolutionary heritage to be able to run across the plains. Is it because, as you said, no animal can outrun us, so it was a, a hunting strategy that we would just run yeah, animals you, uh, down? just run it till it gets tired. Like the zebra can, the zebra can beat you for three miles, but it can't beat you for... Eight miles. And that's really what it is. It's not, there's not some other reason that we evolved this ability to just plod for, because I, when I, and I I know that, that people who are following along the program, uh, that are playing Kenger, the, um, the famous, um, Oh, it's a bingo like, uh, bingo. uh, This uh, is the Futurelings Facebook game. Yeah. The Futurelings on Facebook play a bingo with this show where if we mention Hitler or, oh no, I guess Hitler's not on the board, but if. Hitler should be the center square. If we, uh, there, there are a lot of topics that if we mention it in the show, it allows people playing Kenger to get a bingo. And one of those is my walk across Europe. <laughs> That's uh, the free space. Again. But, uh, but a bunch of the, a, a big part of my motivation going into it was that there was something about long distance ultra travel on foot covered by you, yes. you know, cause that's a very, you know, you could do that by day in a car, but that doesn't feel the same. No, but, but that somehow that, that with your, with your belongings on your back, 
that this steady, methodical plodding, the, 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 the rhythm of the steps, the time outside where you watch the sun go from one horizon to the other, that there was some kind of human wisdom I could unlock in doing that, that would, you know, that I, I wasn't just leaving consumerism behind, that I was going into a thing where my body would click into a level of enlightenment that you could only attain by by going on a great either pilgrimage or diaspora, you know, that it was something intrinsically human. I believe in this, by the way. I can't do it while I'm running because I'm too busy thinking about how I wish I wasn't running. Yeah. But just being disconnected from life, just sitting in an airplane, you have all these ideas you don't have on the ground. I want. What did you find about how it changed your consciousness to uh, to walk through eight countries or whatever? You know what it ends. What it ended up being was when I talk to people that have studied meditation, who have done ten day silent retreats and whatnot. That when they talk about what you're what you're trying to, and I mean, I guess I guess intrinsic to meditating is to not be trying to X, Y, or Z, but the um, the effect of meditating for great periods as they describe what it's like inside to be kind of wrestling with all the different selves that there are. It's very, I, I can absolutely relate to it because in a way I was meditating for eight to 10 hours a day with this kind of slow walk. Maybe you should have brought a Walkman. I know, or a camera or a well, whatever, a deck of cards, but I didn't. I just sat and, and listened to the wind and looked at the looked at the treetops. And it really was um I mean, in a way, an excruciating experience because I was wearing the hair shirt. Too much you? Oh no, well that, but also just like what are you why are you doing this? This is really f- Hard. Well, I would find it boring, I think. Like, is, is that an issue? But beyond, I mean, you go so far beyond boring, Oh, right? bo- boring's like the first hour. You yeah, <laughs> you're so far through that because there's you're not talking to anybody. You're That whole time, it's not like you're walking with a companion uh, that isn't already in your mind. How long before you go crazy and just start talking to, to nothing, talking to trees, talking to the wind? I mean, inside your mind, I was talking to trees and the wind and the 14 other people that were inside uh, for months, months at a time. So, <laughs> but the but ultra running feels like that also, right? Uh, the one way I can relate to it is the idea that you would be you would be transported. You'd have to be transported to a place where pain where you were responding to pain in a in a different way pain was no longer um clearly it's still an issue but like somehow you're you're pushing past the pain pushing through it which and it's not just physical pain it would have to be pushing through psychological pain too I definitely have the pride of doing that you know the pride of you know doing something with pain but I've never had it transform the discomfort or pain for me. Like the best I can do is like not dwell on it. I've never had the moment of how it all goes away and you realize that, uh, everything's transitory and, right. Uh, I don't need to dwell on the pain in my own life. Um, my, my understanding is that in ultra running, that the body actually, your bones actually are destroyed and rebuilt. <laughs> Apparently it's terrible for you. Uh, I was looking at a 2018 study financed by the NIH um, 50 to 60% of people who are ultra runners have musculoskeletal problems. 
um, pathological processes, which is a nice way to say disease-like destruction, right. takes place in your skeletal muscles, your heart, your liver, your kidneys, your immune system, and your endocrine glands. The majority have digestive problems or gastrointestinal bleeding, upper rep- respiratory problems. What's interesting is that all this is temporary. This this happens while you are punishing your body with a really with a hundred mile run, but it it tends to go away. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, oh. So it's just it's just oh. what you would expect, which is a hundred miles is a dumb thing to do. Yeah. All this stuff is <laughs> all this stuff is your your endocrine system's way of being like I cannot actually function while you're draining all my. Uh, cell processes this way. Uh, so Ben suggested that the that the bones of ultra marathoners through this process of like breaking them down sort of like with muscle building but it, but the bones actually regrow harder and denser um that you can actually remake your skeleton into the skeleton of an ultra runner into the skeleton of your dreams. Yeah, and then, and then you just add some adamantium. No, I, don't a, I don't want a denser Wolverine skeleton. It seems like it would make it harder to run. I don't know. I need to get like a light bird skeleton. Yeah, bird skeleton. More than you have now. I mean, a hundred, so a hundred mile runs are, that's about as long as you can go in a day, but there are many multi-day runs as well. Like even a hundred miles is nothing to someone who, who wants to run, who, who has the time, I guess, to run for days or weeks. Um, the fad for multi-day running actually goes back to the 1870s. What, really? Yeah, there was a very common event that was a six-day race. You know, you couldn't run seven days in a row because... Oh, sure. The, that's the, the Lord's Day. Yeah. Right. Um, but people would run Monday to Saturday, often on tracks, with huge audiences. Like, audiences of tens of thousands of people would come to watch uh, just people just go and go and go on a track all week. Oh, so it wasn't like the old-fashioned Olympics where you ran from Sparta to Athens. It was... They just ran on a track. Not at first. Um, you know, I'm not, even to this day, a lot of these events take places on tracks because it's easy, it's easier to staff and run and, you know, you don't have to spread out aid stations across a country. You can just have people running past the same orange slices. Um, but, uh, there, you know, there were multiple kinds of these races. We should probably do a whole omnibus on race walking. There was Uh a lot of this, it was called the, the fad was called pedestrianism. Really? Um, and a lot of the times people would have to walk. You'd have to have the heel of one foot touchdown by the time. Oh, you couldn't fly. (laughs) You were not allowed to fly. Uh, You were not allowed to remake your skeleton into any Ben. As far as you could tell. Gibbardium, a new substance invented by Ben Gibbard. Um, You would have, you know, uh, you could not lift one. People who are running have both feet in the air at the same time. Yes. Uh, As early photography. Flying flying as we. They're they're very briefly flying. In race walking, you have to have one foot down before the next one comes up. So you get people doing it at speed have a very odd kind of jerky gait. When was the last Especially time you, if you saw play yakety sacks. <laughs> I have literally, oh, like in person? Yeah, like, did you I've see seen, them on Greenland? I've seen, no. Speed, I, speed I feel walkers? like I used to see old people at the mall, but you know, to them, speed walking is not what it is to a serious kind of, it doesn't look like a, like Andy Circus doing a thing or a marionette. I feel like in the eighties, you would see people that, with that weird yeah. stork-like speed walking thing. Yeah. But, uh, but it seemed so uncomfortable. So, so like, just it doesn't any look sec- like it can be good for your joints. No, at any second you could dis- dislocate your whole everything. I mean, jogging really is rough on your knees and ankles, but it looks it looks smooth. Yeah, um, depending if you're not a rhinoceros. If you're not a rhinoceros, I'm sure when Peter Sagal does it, it looks like a gazelle, and you're the rhinoceros chasing him down. We talked a little bit about the Chilkoot Trail on this show, and when I was hiking the Chilkoot Trail with my family, um which took us five or six days. At one point, 
at the top of the pass, when we were waking up in the morning, kind of boiling our water on our little gas stoves to make hot cocoa and coffee, um, three guys ran up, up over uphill? the pass in there. You know, they like came over the top of the pass where we had made our camp and they were in shorts and t-shirts and had water bottles and they ran past us on this, this trail that, you know, that up until that point I had thought, why would human beings, you well, know, how does this trail even exist? How would they subject themselves to this over weeks at a time? And these, these, uh, these three just ran past us and these were seventies running shorts too, you know, with the, sinewy thighs yeah. glistening and, uh, and my mouth agape. One of my cousins looked at me and said, oh yeah, you know, they're running the whole trail in a day, 33 miles. I feel that's the way when I see people biking uphill. I'm just like, how are you doing that? It's yeah. like somebody tilted the camera. When we were in Montana this summer, we were, uh, you know, the thing you can always do at ski resorts is um, in the summer is often you can take a gondola to the top and then walk down the trail, oh, that's which nice. is a lot more fun. Right. A mountain bike even. Yeah. And lots of kids are mountain biking. Uh, and then, you know, hang the, hang the bike on the gondola and head back up. We were just going to go to the top, enjoy the views and then kind of walk down the trail through the wildflowers. And it was, a, it was a nice way to spend a couple hours. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, but we saw this family who had decided they had, they were definitely some kind of, uh, um, uh, kind of a, a, a tanned, leathery outdoor family uh, where their activity was going to be... Go up the hill well, in later hose. <laughs> I bet they did that. I wonder if they walked up, but whatever their day, however they started, it ended with them running down the trail. Oh, running down. So we had to, oh. and, it's the, and it's parents and two little kids, and they are just charging down this trail. Then you're already in pain... Yeah, walking like, down. My my knees are hurting just looking at them. And we, uh, you know, we ducked. Ar- we, you know, we had to get to the side because they're charging down. And you know, you try to give people a wide berth on a trail, especially during a pandemic. Right. Um, and then we, you know, we passed them again eating lunch, I think. And then you know, we had just passed them when all of a sudden they come running by us again. And I'm like, these poor kids, because you know, it's like a how old are they? It's like a six year old and a four year old just charging <laughs> all the time. But we, <laughs> Dylan and I, came around the corner and we saw this family and the girl is just screaming because she's skinned her her leg like need a need a ankle um and the parents are like you know come on shake it off let's get let's get a bent you know they're they're mercurochroming her up or whatever you use today <laughs> right back her up and uh you know it was really just very predictable that you could have seen this coming this uh you can't just have a five-year-old run down a mountain they're not built for that yeah although all that stuff i mean you know you've raised your kids kind of like i've raised mine which is to say here are these kids that we're now responsible for. We've got to keep them keep them fed and clothed and presumably read to them until they can read to themselves. But neither of us like put a violin in our children's hands when they were three. We didn't teach them to break dance. We didn't um We didn't make little trick North Korean kids out of them. And yeah. I, and in hindsight, why not? Why didn't we? Yeah, that's right. It just feels like you Missed know opportunity. Why did I not uh, why did I not force her at gunpoint to learn how to play the drums? Or do something cool so that she would be like she would make me look like a cool dad. But I do definitely feel like that kind of Yodelehi who sort of I mean, I have friends whose kids are incredible skiers at six, seven years old because they just that's what the family does. Like get that kid up on skis and go. And I feel bad that I didn't make my daughter an incredible something. Maybe maybe you just I don't know. Maybe just you can't. Regular person. Maybe everybody tries, like and those are the the ones that turn out are the ones whose kids did not kick and scream like my kids did when I said, "Hey, how about a weekly piano lesson?" <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny that now my kids are in age where they're kind of rediscovering all the stuff that they quit at younger ages. 
and you know my son's enjoying chess and he's been you know he'll sit down at the piano and play the beginning of uh Satie's gymnopedy or whatever but it's because it was his idea uh-huh like when i when it was my idea for him to try the chess club or to take piano lessons no way happy holidays john happy holidays to you ken now we have talked about this and you do not like when ad reads have the word butthole in them I don't like the word at all. And I only like ads that have the word butthole in them. I don't, I, I'm, I'm surprised. I would consider it a, uh, I would consider it a vulgarity. What's your objection? I mean. Do you have a, do you have a nicer way to say it? I, I always euphemize, um, all of the, uh, bottom area, uh, particularly like, um. You like to pretend there's no hole at all. There's just a, there's just a bottom. Yeah, I feel like, and I, and I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not an anal retentive person by any means. I just don't like uh, poop, poop references. I'm not, I'm not opposed to pooping. I would even, hope not. But even that is a thing I, I am not, I'm not happy to confess. But with Hello Tushy, you know, there's a, there's a cleaner way. Uh, tell me more about poop. Hello Tushy because I'm, uh, because I'm always interested in the cleanest possible. Way. We're gonna we're gonna do it in a way that, so that you never have to say the word butthole, but you might have to contemplate the existence of them. Well, having heard you say it, now I not only have to contemplate it, but also contemplate you saying the word. Toilet paper is just the wrong way to go. Is it's, I, is, it's a really hard to find commodity right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not right. You never. Yeah. It it doesn't do the job as well as a bidet would. That's true. Yeah. And, okay. And yet bidets have until now not been common in this country they are expensive and unwieldy other places around the world you find bidets all the time and they're very commonplace when i lived in europe i used to keep my pet turtle in a bidet because hmm. every bathroom would have both a toilet and another little spare uh receptacle that was perfect for a turtle enclosure yeah anytime a bathroom can fit a bidet in europe it seems to have a bidet but i've been using the Hello Tushy uh, bidet attachment, which you can just put on your normal everyday existing toilet. Right. It just snaps onto your toilet seat. No electricity, no additional plumbing. Wow. And How it, is it powered? It'll just turn your, you have to um, use bicycle pedals oh, uh-huh. while you sit there. <laughs> no, I mean the, the pressure of, of water from the, oh. the toilet tank powers it. How cool. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, and it cuts your toilet paper use by 80%. So, and it's so economical. It only costs $79 to start cleaning your undercarriage this way. Wow. You know, I have a septic system here. Oh, and you don't like TP at all then. No, toilet paper is just nothing but, nothing but problems for us. Normally it would be, your life would be going wrong if you were to just say, I've stopped wiping. When I poop. Yeah, that's that wouldn't be a good sign unless you prefaced it with saying... I now own this amazing... I have a Hello Tushy. ...bidet attachment. Uh, and now is the perfect time to buy, to introduce Hello Tushy to the life of you or your loved ones. I know. Can you imagine? What a great Christmas gift or Hanukkah gift or Kwanzaa gift to say, guess what, mom and dad? I have, I have a, a, a I've been, brand new way. I've been thinking about... You're pooping and wiping, and I have some notes. <laughs> uh, it comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee, which they call their happy butt guarantee. Yeah, right. Uh, 12-month warranty. And if you act now, you can get 10% off your Hello Tushy purchase plus free shipping right now. Oh, cool. You just have to go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus. 
and it's a it's a a twelve month warranty for 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 a, a whole year. You can use a Hello Tushy and not worry about nothing can go wrong. Wow, I can think of so many things that could go wrong with me personally. Sure, in the next twelve months, things are going to go bad, I but nothing <laughs> related to your bidet. So that's ten percent off plus free shipping right now at hellotushy.com slash omnibus. HelloTushy.com slash omnibus. The invention of the bicycle uh, kind of killed the pedestrianism fad because you could now go see people doing stuff faster. Right, a velodrome. Right. That's that's even more exciting. So the suddenly, you know, and it really just speaks to how boring life was in the 1870s <laughs> that, that 70,000 people would show up to watch race walking. Um, but, uh, you know, multi-day racing, ultra running took a new step in the 20th century Um Ever since 1920, 1928 was the first L.A. to New York run, um, which takes place over a lot of these multi-day races. Um, L.A. to New York. And uh, this one took 84 days, the very first Bunyan Derby, as they called it, in 1928. And there are still long... 1928? That would have been... You would have been really out in the... Yeah, there were not good roads. Right. Zigzagging um, the whole way. There were not, uh, to this day, there are these kind of long races like that. Like in 2003, there was a trans-Europe race from Lisbon to Moscow. Oh, they went the opposite way yeah, they, of my ex. Did they, did they cross you? Must have done. What year what, what, what year did they do? 2003. Oh, no, I was already long done, long gone by then. Well, you missed it. Well, you would, you would have had to wait. There's like a crosswalk. Right, right. Crosswalk in Hungary or something. <laughs> And uh, some guy to, with a flag would have. Yeah. I don't think they're all together in one big peloton. If it's like an eighty-four day race across America, yeah, maybe not. Um, but in a lot of these races, it's you know it spreads it stretches out over over days. There, there's generally a leg you're supposed to run in a day, and your times are recorded. In some of these multi-day races, there's not even a distance; it's a time, and whoever runs the longest over the time is the ultra running champion. Um, but today, one of the, many of these multi-day events are uh, many of these. Ultra running multi-day events are limited to one person. It's more of a Forrest Gump type kind of thing where you just challenge yourself, or yeah. everybody leaves uh, uh, like once an hour, or how? How do they? No, it's just, it's just one person who has somehow got maybe they just their own quixotic pursuit. And maybe they, they're doing they it in local local news is interested. Maybe more likely they're doing it for colon cancer or for the blind or whatever it is. And 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 this is how ultra running happens today, and that kind of makes it. Uh, a position of privilege because it has to be somebody who can take six weeks off of work to uh, run across Southeast well, Asia or, or Mexico or whatever it is. It's like bodybuilding in the sense that uh, at the lower economic scale, there are people who are very muscular because they work. And there are people who are, who can run really far because they, uh, they have to run barefoot to the next town. That's something I've noticed online is there's a lot of behaviors that that link the the very poor and the very wealthy. Yeah, you know, eccentric, eccentric clothing, for example. Exactly. At the at the upper end, you have to have all this leisure time to uh, to do Pilates seven days a week or to do dance church, and uh, and ultra running has to be that too. Um, because it's a something of an activity of privilege. I, this is when I should introduce. Um, my favorite ultra runner, the, the person whose story got me interested in this topic, Ranulf Twizelton Wycom Fines. Ranulf Twizelton Wycom 
Fines th- absolutely must be related to the third baronet of Banbury, the Fines brothers. Oh uh, yeah, he's uh Reynolds Fines is the triple is the third cousin of uh, of Rafe and Joseph Fines, the actors, or maybe of their father. Uh, he is he has the triple barreled last name that comes with somebody with a with a last name inheriting some kind of hyphenated last name. Right. Uh, I think the record right now in the UK is four. There are a few quadruple barreled families. Um, but, uh, Sir Ranulph Twizelton Wycombe Fines goes by Ranulph or Ran Fines, and he is, uh, kind of the foremost explorer of our post-exploration era. He's a baron? Uh, he's a baronet. A baronet. The third baronet of Banbury, and I hope there will be no follow-up questions about the difference. <laughs> and so he's you're, still you're, out- I believe British peerage does not have a baron. Like, right, where right. other, where other European peerages have a- Systems of nobility have a baron. Uh, maybe they have no. They have earl instead of count. I don't know, but their their scale Baronets, is, is different. So he's out there exploring uh, what's behind the dumpsters in the parking lots of the WalMarts uh, that where everything else has been explored in the world. He's a geocacher. Uh, no, often people in that situation have to create by by imposing new. They're just like an artist by imposing new strictures on their exploration. They can come up with a thing that nobody has done. Right. Around it's, the world in 100 days. Exactly. Uh, in fact, he has circumnavigated the earth in a very odd way, as we shall see. It's kind of like when you see on, uh, when you're watching a sports event and they say, well, this pitcher is actually uh, eight and O um, against the Padres at night. You know, like you have to, uh-huh. you have to invent a very small niche to, to award somebody any kind of record or uh, superlative. Um, in his case, he was a he was with the British Army for a long time. The last couple of years of his service in the early seventies in the Sultanate of Oman, where he had to where he he discovered that uh, both the Sultan that he had been dispatched to protect uh, and the communist militias he was protecting the Sultan against were equally awful, uh-huh. and that ended well, his. I don't think that's an un, 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 uh, unfamiliar story. He was shocked to discover. <laughs> Wait a minute, are you saying both sides are bad? Uh, but he did his duty for the, his final two years and then got out of the army and became kind of a professional post-exploration explorer. And it's funny to read about his, um, it's funny to read about his exploits because he is very much a man out of time. This is a guy who returned to Oman to uncover the lost city of Ubar sure. from under the sands. However, he, he, he got to it before I did. He did this in 1992. The lost city of Ubar. Imagine your name can be Sir Ranulph Fiennes, the Baronet of Banbury, and you're finding the lost city of Ubar. But it's not 1922. It's 1992. Wow. Nice job. He, he's doing this at the height of grunge. Sir Ranulph Fiennes. <laughs> and all his other accomplishments are very much, uh, you know, will you love a man out of time? He, in 19, uh, he, he circumnavigated the earth, but he did it from 1979 to 1982. Huh. When it was a lot easier. But no, wait for it. On a unicycle. He circumnavigated the Earth on the polar axis. So instead of going around the equator, he went from the North Pole down to the South Pole and then back up. Whoa! And he followed the Greenwich Meridian as closely as possible. Whoa! Which and he did the whole thing on foot or boat, like no, you know, no, he, no trains or whatever. So he walked across Antarctica. He walked across the polar ice cap and across Antarctica. Uh, I that think seems he, like the hardest part of that. With dog sledges. In order to make Antarctica harder nowadays, you have to do things like, uh, uh, in 2012, he wanted to become the first person to dog sled across Antarctica during the winter. Everybody else goes during our winter, the Antarctic summer. and But, you know, sure. he, he's got to be the first. If you want to be the first guy to do something, 
Um, it's 100 and, below zero or whatever with a with a 100 uh, mile an hour wind. And if you look at a picture of this guy, he just looks like, you know, some some kind of uh, upper class dad you'd see at a, at a bar at a nice London hotel. Um, in his own stories, he's had many adventures, uh, in, including some that interact, in, intersect with celebrity. He was... In stories he t- he's told on Top Gear, for example, he once as a as a military prank blew up the dam that a, the 20th Century Fox had built to shoot Doctor Doolittle in the UK, and he and he was fed up and blew up the dam. He also has described himself as one of the finalists for the role of James Bond in the early 70s that ultimately went to Roger Moore. Uh, what uh, what? First of all, what kind of name is Ranulf? I'm not even 100 percent sure I'm saying it right, and I don't care to look. Okay. Ranulf. Uh, it's uh, it's close enough to Randolph to yeah. make me think that someone it, it, just it, it is a name. Away. Yeah, I mean the fact that he's a third cousin of a guy whose name is Ralph but spells it Rafe, it tells you that <laughs> that unusual things are happening in in British naming of that kind. Well, now do you respect? Uh, there there was something about the the age of exploration. All the pith helmet guys out there uh, 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 discovering King Tut's tomb and whatnot where it happened long enough ago that we can kind of say like, oh, it was a sort of, this was an era of colonial rich dopes that were stealing the Elgin marbles and just generally like being insensitive, but also kind of discovering the world as we know it or cataloging it at least. But this kind of rich uh, dilettante, dilettantish behavior, does it still command respect? I mean, when I think of, circumnavigating the globe north to south and back again that's just um you'd have to be rich but it's also just like such a novel notion i kind of want to give a slow clap it's definitely a, a totally different pursuit because he's made it a kind of athletics you know mm. all these all these explorers of the you know the first people to circumnavigate the earth were in it for gold the money and the spices and to have stuff named for them and uh you know, it's it's definitely a sense of trying to recapture something of the probably f- fuzzily remembered romance of it, um, but overlaying it with a kind of uh, personal best kind of tw- very 20th century achievement mentality, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, can I be the first to do this, the first to do that? Um, like, you know, Magellan wasn't like, okay, everybody will remember me if... Right. Uh, whereas, if I do this with one leg tied behind my back. But I guess you. one thing I admire about it is uh, very much a normal guy. Like this guy's sky, scaling Alps and Norwegian glaciers, uh, despite the fact that he has a fear of heights. Good for him. Oh. Um, uh, so, so there is this element, uh, and this is true in ultra running too, that, that I describe as the hair shirt, the kind of self-abnegation of like defeating the, it's like the mortification of the flesh in a way, right? A secular version of that or like a personal version of it? I think it has to be when, I mean, once people have done Everest without oxygen, why is anyone trying Everest without oxygen if they can no longer be the first? Like what you're really saying is, I'm going to push myself to do the harder thing. You know, I I know I can do the one thing. What, uh, how much more do I have to suffer but maybe it's like me running Green Lake and just being happy that I feel good at the end. You know, maybe maybe they are maybe they don't enjoy the subjugation of the flesh. I mean, the, maybe they the, just like having said they did it. The mountain climbers all. I mean, the the elite mountain climbers all talk about it becoming an addiction, an obsession, well past the point that they've proved everything there is to prove. 
They just um, have to be up there. Yeah, and that you know, eventually they kind of all assume that they're going to die there just because they'll be driven to to greater and greater challenges. And and they talk about it the same way that you talk about addictions, where they wish that they could just give it up. They wish that it didn't haunt them in the night. And I wonder. This isn't a thing I've talked about with uh, with the my ultra runner pal, but like how much of it um, becomes a thing that you wish you could overcome. Like you wish you could turn it off. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, if there's no end to it, yeah. if you've run, if you've run a hundred miler and now you're going to run a 200 miler, uh, at what point are you? It really, you have to face the question of, is there anything unhealthy about addiction per se? You know, if, if you're addicted to methamphetamine, that's very, you know, the, the problem is not the, your, your addictive personality. The problem is that you're putting stuff in your body that's poisoning you. Yeah. If you're addicted to something that's actually really good for your musculoskeletal system in general and is, and is turning you into a new element unknown to man, um, right, is, we is it still unhealthy to be addicted if you're addicted to fitness? We don't talk about addiction in those terms, right? I mean, there are people who I would describe as addicted to their day planner. Yeah. Who every morning wake up and if they're bre- if they're not making their breakfast at seven fifty nine, they're lose gonna lose their mind. And we don't think of that as an addiction. We might think of it as a kind of anal retentiveness or a personality disorder, but not a thing because it because it is so virtuous, or at least they they talk about it as a, as if it's a virtue. And there's nothing that seems more virtuous than this kind of crazy distance running. It's absolutely true. It just feels like because it, it it's like a monastic it borders on that on what we think of as as like monk behavior yeah we still have that throwback assumption that if um that just doing something difficult is good for its own sake and the more difficult the more good mm-hmm. because you're depriving yourself of um of the like the depredation of luxury or the, um, the like, it does become more, I think it has become more convincing in modernity when you can see what more and more leisure and luxury does to you personally. And it's, I don't think it's been good for my brain to have, uh, you know, more, fewer and fewer limits on my free time. You know, I, I find myself having to, um, you know, create new empires to conquer just so that I'm not, twiddling my thumbs. I find that I have to try work to keep myself uh, off of my phone just because that kind of behavior doesn't seem to be good for my brain either. Um, so maybe is there is like, something to it. Why is aloneness with our thoughts um, considered, I, I guess it. Maybe that's because it's when you're aware of time passing. We think of other, 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 um, other pastimes as losing time. Like right. because I was I was out with my friends and we were having such a good time. Uh, the time the hours just flew. Um, you th- oh well, wow that's four hours I'll never get back. Whereas if you're by yourself, you're bored enough that you're aware of the passage of time and you thereby think I'm really getting the most out of yeah. my allotted. I'm getting this hour time on Earth, squeezing every minute out of it. <laughs> I mean, it's the core of Buddhism, right? That this that the present. Yeah. Um. So, Sir uh, Sir Reynolds, uh has uh, dabbled in ultra running in one of the most remarkable feats I can imagine. But, uh, you know, in the last 10 years when you've seen his name in the news, it's largely been because of his failures. 
I mean, I don't want to gang up on the poor guy, but you know, he's a lot of these, if you do a lot, enough of these ambitious expeditions, they will not succeed. I mean, he, uh, he failed in climbing Everest in, uh, with a heart attack. You know, he failed several times once with a heart attack that required a bypass. They had to take him off the mountain and give him a double bypass. In 2000, he had a plan to like walk solo to the North pole, but he ended up, um, falling through the ice on his sleds and had to, he had to pull the ice out of the freezing water and his frostbite got so bad in his hands that his fingertips died and he ended up back at home sawing them off himself with a fret saw. This is, uh, he's doing this by himself. When he got back home, don't you think that the that there were hospitals available? I guess the hospital said, uh, we, we don't want to amputate. Like, the, the longer we can leave the necrotic tissue on, the healthier. And he finally just uh, found it painful and annoying and said, bugger this or whatever wealthy people say in Britain and sawed off his own fingertips with a fret saw. On both hands? Just on his left hand. He's I not see. an idiot. All right, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> He's not crazy, John. <laughs> um in 2012, he was going to, again, this is his coldest journey uh, campaign across Antarctica at the height of their winter. And he, that for that, he had to be evacuated by air because it turns out some of these things that have not been done by anyone, it's because there's a reason why they haven't been done by anyone. I'm surprised they could even fly a helicopter in those conditions. Uh, yeah, it's very easy to die doing some of these things. He is still with us. But in 2003, uh, he had a plan to run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days, which seems like the most bizarre ultra running feat I can imagine. Because flying on an airplane is so bad for you anyway, just on its own. Like you'd be recuperating from the last marathon at 30,000 feet on your way to the next marathon. The logistics of it alone are very puzzling. Like how do you even get to seven continents in seven days, let alone leave yourself enough time to run a marathon in each one. Um, this was something he had agreed to do with a, a nutritionist named Mike Stroud, who had been an expedition made of his on one of his polar expeditions. Um, they had a, the whole thing planned for October 2003. And uh, just, I think, three or four months before they were going to start, he had his double bypass just off Everest. And so he's coming off uh, a heart attack. He's recovering from a heart attack when he decides to do his seven marathons in seven days. What was the hardest continent to run a marathon on well in his retelling of it it's actually asia but not for the reason you would think it was because singapore is very muggy right um i think in terms of polluted uh, is singapore clean singapore's pretty clean i mean you're not stepping in any gum you do 20 you do 20 days in jail for gum if uh you know i think as far as the planning angle antarctica would be right the hardest continent to run a marathon on. And in fact, that's where things went wrong from the beginning. The plan was originally to start on King George Island in the South Shetlands uh-huh. off, off the coast of Antarctica. So I guess you have to say that we're going to count this island as part of Antarctica, but that's okay. I mean, he, he ran the final leg, he ran the, the New York City Marathon, um, or at least the the uh, the length of it. And oh, that's I, an island off North America. Well, that'd be amazing if he culminated this run with a run like in the Boston Marathon itself. And he and he, he he got there late and had to pass everyone to get to the front. Uh, he did finish in New York. Was it the actual marathon? This account in the Guardian kind of implies that he did get to New York in time 
so you know their timeline is very limited because he has to do the seventh and final one uh, and actually run the New York Marathon. Right. Whoa. Well, you know, the one way to find this out is to see when the New York Marathon was. There you go. In 2003. Was it, in fact, the date of... Yes, it was. It was the uh, the first week in November. Huh, how clever. Um, so, but to get this done, to arrive in New York in time for his seventh and final continent and run the New York Marathon, he needs to start in Antarctica on a certain date. And he settled for King George Island, which... Uh, uh, when I looked it up, it's most famous as the place where Antarctica's first attempted murder happened in 2018. <laughs> is there a, a year-round population? No, I don't think I do. Uh, there's a Russian station that has a year-round population, enough that it has a permanently uh, a permanently staffed uh, Eastern Orthodox basilica, I think. No kidding. I think it might be Antarctica's only 24, uh, you know, uh, full-year priest. But in, uh, in uh, the Russian station at King George Island in... I think 2018, one of the Russian scientists tried to stab, uh, or did stab, a Russian welder um, because he kept, the welder kept spoiling the endings of books. <laughs> the ultimate Russian murder mystery. The Antarctica, Antarctica really gets to people, I guess. Um, so yeah, but apart from that cold case, King George Island is not in the news much. So his plan was King George Island and then up to... Uh, Santiago, Chile, to do the South American, and then to go west across the globe to follow the sun. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Um, but things went wrong from the beginning. Due to poor weather and engine trouble in his plane, he was unable to do the King George, you know, to run a marathon on King George Island uh, the day he had said. And so he had to immediately, he and his friend, his fellow adventurer, uh, Dr. Stroud, had to change up their itinerary from the beginning. They decided to start... And tell me what you think about this. Start on the Falkland Islands and call that Antarctica. No, the Meh. Falkland Islands are Britain. <laughs> well, it could be British Antarctica. <laughs> Certainly, if you had to assign them a continent, it would be South America. That's the basis for the Argentine claim. That's right. It would have to be South America. So no, already invalidated. But what, what I don't understand about a thing like this is you were intending to end in New York and you have to be in New York on a certain day. If you can't run in Antarctica at the beginning, you just have to tack it on at the end. New York ends up being in the middle somewhere. I think the problem is you cannot run the New York Marathon and then get down to Antarctica in time to run a marathon the next day, maybe? Because think about the logistics. So so here's the here's his itinerary. It's uh, It turns out to be Falkland Islands count as, counted as Antarctica. Hmm, a little iffy. Nope. Uh, <laughs> you're already <laughs> mad. Oh, no, no. He switched the order. He had to do... Uh, he did the South America race first by running in Argentina and then hopping over to the Falklands and calling that Antarctica. Then he has to get on a plane and get to Sydney, Australia, where uh, it's already, I think, 12 or 13 hours later and get in a race by the next day because it's not just seven marathons on seven continents. It's got to be in seven consecutive days. I see. Um so let's see. I mean, can you just the logistics alone? You, let's say you get a very you run the Falkland Islands leg as early as you can. But you're down there at the bottom of the world, so it's a shorter distance between. I looked on a globe. Is that it's right? It's still pretty. It looks to me like on a commercial jet, it would be closer to twelve hours than ten between the Falklands and Sydney. And I'm sure he's, you know, this is you know, this is some uh, benefit for the British Heart Foundation. So he's got. Money and I'm sure a private jet ferrying him around. But it would a flight like that go over the pole? It it would have to, right? It's not going to go around. It's going to go over. Yeah, it's the equivalent of a 
Yeah, transpolar flight. But it still looks to me like it couldn't be much quicker than than, you know, anywhere else in on the American continent to Sydney, you know? Yeah. Uh Sydney's very far to the west. It's it's fully 12 hours to the the time change is 12 hours to the west. Right. Um or 13 maybe. It's already, you know, it's already tomorrow morning right now in Sydney. So you're going to lose all that all that day just to the clock. Right, but then but does that set you up to have more time if you head back the other direction? What came after Sydney? Uh, then he ha- hops up to Singapore and does Asia. Then there's a long flight to London, which counts as Europe. Right, and at that point you're going back in time. Yes, that's true. So that's that's working to his benefit, right? That's right. the that's the Phileas Fog around the world in eighty days thing. Then down to Cairo to run a marathon in Africa, and then across the Atlantic to New York. Oh, so um, he went from Singapore to London. Which direction? He must have been. He must oh, have oh, gone across the Pacific. No, he went over Asia. Oh, he did. Oh. He's traveling west the whole time. Um, and you know, once he crosses the international day line, that's the day you lose the most time. So you've got to run a three-hour marathon that day. Then take whatever I, I don't know, ten-hour flight maybe, to a, get a place where it's twelve hours later in time to run another marathon. I mean, that's that's the diciest one right there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, apart from the, the, uh, kind of, uh, asterisk on Antarctica, he, uh, ran seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. Um, the, the privations included, um, just the intense heat and hum- 100% humidity of, of Singapore year round. It's on the equator. Um, which he described as hell on earth and his, his, his companion actually had some kind of stomach upset and ended up walking most of the Singapore marathon. Um, his, uh, the Cairo marathon he did on four hours sleep. And he ran a marathon in London, got four hours sleep and then ran a marathon in Cairo. Are these marathons that, that included other people that were like previously scheduled marathons where I'm pretty sure the Falklands one wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, in most of these cases, it's him and his buddy running a 26.2-mile course. So you could conceivably just land at the airport, run around run in circles the airport, on the runway. Yeah, for 26 miles and get back on a plane. Yes, and I'm sure that's what happened in cases like Cairo where he was kind of down to the wire. Um, so I was interested in, you know, when I first read about this, I was like, how does anyone, much less this British heart attack recovering patient in his 50s, run seven continents, seven days. So I looked to see what the record is. And it turns out there is some contention. Uh, there's a San Antonio lawyer named Larry Macon who claims to have run 239 marathons in a row. Like, you mean- sorry, in 239 days. He ran a daily marathon for eight mo- almost eight months. On his treadmill in his office? No. Wh- while he was on the phone? No, many of them organized marathons and and some not. You know, he's just driving around from marathon to marathon and traveling, traveling. And he says that's the hardest part is the logistics of it, and uh, you know, just figuring out where you can get to for the next day to keep the street going. Is there a marathon season in the United States where it's like, oh, it's, this is peak marathon season? I can do two hundred thirty nine marathons just due to weather. They avoid, you know, many places avoid snow, places that have to avoid snow, places that have to avoid hot weather. Right. Um, but uh, I have found a, 
a marathon investigation website that is very skeptical of Larry Macon's, Mr. Macon's claims. Oh, what? what because, what you know, say? well, the, the, he lists itineraries that they say are impossible. There's no way to run that marathon and then get to the, uh, get to New Mexico in time to run the next one. He, you know, he says he did three that weekend and the drive times just make it impossible. I see. Um, and it's true that Guinness has not verified his uh, run. I think Guinness has, you know, the, the record holder for most marathons in a year and Guinness is still... Um, you know, dozens off that pace. But there is, you know, before, lest we overpraise Sir Randall Fines, the third baronet of Banbury, there is a Spaniard, a, a factory worker in Navarre named Ricardo Abad, who claims to have run 607 consecutive marathons in 607 consecutive days. Oh. For For over, for almost two years... He ran 26 miles he a day. He ran 26 miles every day. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where people, you know, he raises money, people buy in for a euro a kilometer or whatever. 26 miles in an organized marathon every day. No. No, no, no. Okay, no. okay, okay. Uh, I'm sure like, but, you know, but he considers that his ultra marathon. He's, he's running a daily marathon for two years. So the kind of thing that you and I would have to work up to fitness-wise over the course of years is just his his daily uh well it's it's his job now I guess. And many of actually it's not his job. He was still working 8-hour shifts in his factory. And then he would what? Run, and then he would run a marathon. He would either run a marathon in the morning before going to work or he would get off work and run a marathon at night. Sometimes he ran two marathons in less than 12 hours depending on when his shifts got scheduled. So it says that an average marathon time um is four to five hours. Um, I'm going to assume these ultra marathoners are good enough that their times are closer to three. Well, it says that, yeah, elite runners can run a marathon in two hours. Uh, beating four hours is a major accomplishment yeah. for most people. Yeah. Peter Sagal was very excited when he got closer to three than four, I remember. And he's much closer to three than four now. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, whenever he, he talks about marathon running, I, my, my, I you just stop listening. Well, I don't know. My, my, I, I start to gaze out the window and look at all the pretty girls and the flowers in the flower boxes. And then I come back when he starts well, talking about his kids. Well, all the pretty girls that, that, that will be attracted to him when they find out that he's a, well, I guess so. a, a fit marathon runner. I suppose. I mean, he sells it to me as, you know, really the only thing you can, the only sport you can age into with excellence, you know, where it's pretty really girls it's, like rhinoceroses too. Rhinoceri. Rhinoceria. Rhinoceria? Don't <laughs> do not give any of these girls rhinoceria. And that concludes Ultra Running. Entry 1357.IS4031. Certificate number 20800 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, I'm sure that all of your friends that are marathon runners are posting about it on their Facebook page. At this very moment, even a thousand years from now, whatever whatever like octopus version of an ultra marathon is. Well, if you imagine that uh, evolution is pushing toward greater efficiency, then you know future listeners will probably be laughing at. at at 26 miles or 100 miles pushing our limits. Sure, because futurelings they, are all unladen African swallows. No, they're, they're, you know, they could be thousand-legged centipedes 
Then maybe they never stop moving. They're the snow piercers of the future. Super hauling all over the place. Yeah. Well, maybe they're on a different scale, right? So, uh, so a, 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 a centipede, even though maybe traveling very fast relative to its size, thinks of 26 miles as a lifetime Impossible. endeavor. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what I like about long walking is that you're covering a space that seems like it's a car trip. You're like, look at this magic trick I did. Yeah. Normally, uh, I would take a car to downtown, but I just walked it like a yes. superhero. Um, I don't know. Maybe if, if they really are so ever moving, maybe they maybe their marathon is actually how long can you sit still? How long? Well, I know there are quite a few people I know that would consider th- uh, it much harder to sit in one place all day than oh, to I mean, and any any school child trying to sit through a six and a half hour school day, right? Or my sister who is like a school child. For for my part, the day that I walked further than a horse could walk, re- a regular horse that would just be like you know if you if I'd been on a horse. Was there, my, was there a horse following you so you knew when, exactly when that moment was? No, but I did a little bit of research like, how far do you go on a horse in a day? And it was, you know, it, it was an amount that I could exceed past a certain point, And then I could walk much further than a horse could yeah. walk. And I was just like, S- I'm, a, I'm like at a different level now, man. I can, I'm better, I'm tougher than a horse. Maybe this was the crisis that Nietzsche had when he saw the horse. Yeah, the, he was like, don't flog that horse, that horse. Or maybe maybe a horse he, is a horse. Maybe he just walked faster than the horse, and he was uh, walked faster to over to the horse to hug it. <laughs> I guess. I don't know to to be able to travel a hundred miles a day on foot or by your own under your own power. That just has such an. It just has like such a. I don't know. Like even a, on a bike, a it's power. pretty good. Yeah. E- even if you're getting the mechanical advantage of the bike, you really do feel like you did it. Yeah, 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 and that you've done something that few people can claim to have done. Although, as you were telling me earlier. It's absurdly common in Americans. Every single Amazon employee (laughs) has run a marathon this year. Um, If you want to talk to us about this more and tell us uh, all about your marathon. Because your uh, friends are sick of it. History. uh, Please write us at petersagel at (laughs) petersagel.com. No, you can write us uh, at uh, theomnibusproject at gmail.com or you can tweet Ken at Ken Jennings um, or you can tweet selfies to me. Uh, at Instagram, at John Roderick. Tweet John your running selfies. Um, for great you, your spandex. You can mail us your gold medals and your ribbons from all the marathons you've been in at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155, or your granddad's old medals, his Civil War medals, your great-great-great-granddad's Civil War medals, or your great-grandmother's war that she got uh, from the French government during World War One. Or her own private war against alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Send us, send us your grandmother's 15-year coin. <laughs> uh, you can uh, hang out with other Futurelings in the various uh, social media places under the Futurelings moniker. And if you would like to support the show, we appreciate it very much. Your contributions, however large or small, um, greatly aid us in the production of this show and uh, there are lots of benefits to being a Patreon supporter of Omnibus. So go on over to patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. I'm actually looking at some mail right now from a Patreon supporter Michael R. Clark at the Lobster Person tier uh, from Ontario. Um, 
is talking about the legalization of different kinds of green funerals in his home okay, province. Of Ontario, sure. Um, but he also sent us some social currency. What is that? Uh, well, it's two different denominations. Um, social currency created to recognize the power of its value. I guess the idea is if you don't mint pieces of paper uh, about a certain... Uh, virtue, then we will not respect it as much as money. So he sent us social currency of laughter. Oh, that's nice. Pictured a laughing guy. And the social currency of knowledge. Pictured some kind of smart-looking dodecahedron thing. Um, that looks like a that looks like a twenty-sided die. I don't know. Did he mint this himself? Maybe. What? Uh, they seem a little bit like uh, those they dollars that I used to give to my dad at Christmas time that said good for one hug. <laughs> That's basically what this is, but instead of hugs it's laughter and knowledge. Good for one laugh. I'll laugh at one of your jokes, John, if you uh, if you give me this. I oh, I see. It. It's from Value Investment Alliance. What does that mean? I, I, don't, I don't know. It's the, it's whatever the website is that is um Oh, it's an art project that he uh, Oh, artist. that he frequented. Artists love putting money in stuff and making us be like, boo, money. But these guys have moved beyond that. Like, they're not making, like, a a, a doll, $100 bill collage out of um, poop or whatever. These guys are making new, better money. We also, speaking of Canada, got um, birthday cards from Matthew and Jen and family who oh. sent us Christmas cards. Oh, nice. Both honor Canadian heroes. One for um, these iconic First Nations Cowichan sweaters. Okay. Okay. Of, of British Columbia. I don't know who the hero is. Either the... You know, I have a, a large collection of those people. sweaters. Well, now you have a birthday card about them. And I got one celebrating a good Canadian screw. So why are... Why it's the, is it's the, the Robertson square-tipped screwdriver and screw, which is apparently one of the 10 greatest Canadian inventions of all time. Why are, is the mailbag spitting up so much Canada-centric stuff? I don't know. But you know what the Canadian Postal Service right now is doing? Is stamping thanks healthcare workers on its envelopes. Or merci, uh, personnel soignant. <laughs> we also got, speaking of weird uh, denominations, this is good. This is from Eric. Apparently, recently on the show, I said that for a five-figure donation, you would get to shoot a gun at me. Oh. But you didn't. You didn't say which denomination. You corrected it to six figures, but it doesn't matter because this guy has a million-dollar Turkish old lira note, which was legal tender in Turkey as recently as fifteen years ago. Yes, I remember um, using those bills. And with a, you know, with a with a one million dollar uh, note, he is now allowed to shoot at me multiple times, perhaps as many as ten times. I will trade you whatever you want for that bill because it's very evocative to me that that uh, that Turkish lira bill. But if I give this to you, will you shoot at me ten times? If you give that to me, I will defend you against someone trying against to shoot Eric? at you. Against Eric, I will. Okay, I'll fight Eric. That's fair. That's fair. You're now my bodyguard. Wow, look at this! I haven't seen one of these in so long. Eric didn't think I would wriggle out of his clutches. Oh, wow. He should, you shouldn't have sent the money up front, Eric. You should have shot first. That's so great. I remember getting these out of a cash machine and having no idea what this meant in terms of American dollars and feeling like, okay, I have a million of these now? Is this like, what is this? Is this worth $10? Is it worth $500? I've always thought it was weird that Turkey had lira anyway. Why does Turkey have lira? Lira, there is a Are, story behind that. Maybe Italy's the uh, lira appropriator. Maybe it is a, a Middle Eastern or Near Eastern currency. Who 
knows? We'll do it on a future omnibus. We will. Maybe. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that ultra running extends far into the future, no matter how many legs you have, because the catastrophe fear has been averted. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. And we will never get to the bottom of why Turkey has Lyra. Well, it was introduced by Charlemagne, and it's derived from the Latin Libra, meaning silver. So it did go from Italy to Turkey, but it was Charlemagne's. Yeah. The Holy Roman Empire extended into Turkey, huh? There it is. Well, at least the money did. Who knew? But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.